And I love talking to people in terms that they understand because uh, this is what gives a meaning to what I do. Where, where I have more of a problem is when I find scientists who don't value this and who are like, they're happy in their ivory tower. I, I, I love the continuity. And, and, I, and, and, you know, it's part of what I do also. I want what I do to be meaningful. And if I can't bring it back to something, if I can't discuss this with many people, even if it's simplifying it to the bone, but if I can't explain why I'm doing something, I'm not interested in it. Balash Kegel, and this is the I Scientist podcast where we explore artificial intelligence, science, and the scientist behind the science. It's my great pleasure today to introduce Gael Varocco, my friend, who is a senior AI researcher at INRIA, so we call it Directeur de Recherche in France. And INRIA is uh, the Computer Science Research Institute of France. So, welcome, Gael. How are you today? I'm doing great. How are you, Balash? Great, great, great. I'm looking forward to this. So, Gael had an incredible tour in the landscape of science. So he graduated from phys in physics, experimental physics, right? Then he moved into AI, machine learning, data science. You will define what you are. Uh, and so when we met, you were working in an interdisciplinary group on medical imaging and AI. And since then, it, bro it, it broadened up towards general health and uh, social science applications. And maybe you are the best known outside the, the, the narrow ML community as the founder of Scikit-Learn, which is the main data science library used by, let's say, I don't know, hundreds, hundreds of thousands of data scientists, I guess, all over the world. So it's, it's an amazing variety of directions and and interests so my first question would be how, how how would you call yourself how how do you describe yourself to somebody who just you know learned about ai in the last couple of years where after the lab leak so are you a data scientist researcher social i i usually don't like putting labels on on, on people right I, I think you know above all i'm a scientist but i also like uh, technology and creating technology but i think it always comes back to being a scientist and i don't like labels you know i see people used to ask me but are you are you still a physicist what does that mean <laughs> once a physicist always a physicist right maybe uh Okay, so what I would mostly interested in, be interested in is like, how do you choose what you work on? What governs your choices? Mm. Because it's it's an it's, it's it's really an amazing, uh, you know, variety. It came from physics, AI, social science, health. So how did you choose? How, what were what were the steps defined by when we went through this? I guess it starts uh, uh, with bad reasons. I think uh, one of the reasons why I, I studied physics is that my father was a physicist. Mm. And I grew up in this environment 
And so, of course, you know, I was more good at it in, in class than other things because I had stimulation. And I had an amazing course in quantum physics by Edouard Brezin that was uh, very stimulating. And, you know, where I was also doing my study, we were surrounded by very good quantum physicists. So, you know, one thing leading to another, I end up, uh, uh, you know, uh, doing a PhD in, in quantum physics. And I was always, I always liked computers. Computers were, were they were pleasant, you know, from really early on, I would, I would code on my calculator uh, during class instead of listening to, to lessons. Uh, and, and during my PhD, I guess uh, coding was one of the parts that I preferred. And after my PhD, it was like, uh, do I, do I want to go on in, in, in physics? Uh, I might want to be doing something else. And I, I moved to, to INRIA and to um, data science for, for neuroscience via open source software, because I was already doing open source software. And via the network, I meet uh, uh, someone who tells me, well, you know, there are good things to be done. I visit them. And just the idea of using, you know, data mining, I had no idea what it meant. But using data mining on brain images to understand the brain, that sounded super exciting. Of course, you know, <laughs> it was a very naive view. And then and then in AI, I learned a lot. I learned about uh about statistics, about computing in a more like formal way. Uh, I, I, I learned about machine learning. I also interact a lot with, uh, with a neuroscientist. And there I learn a lot, well, a lot about the brain, but also a lot about psychology, a lot about how basically science is done in a broader setting than, than math and physics. And that was really interesting. And after a while, there's this thing that comes in and is like, are you using your energy to solve the best problems? And I was thinking, well, maybe not. We have pretty important problems uh, uh, in the world. And some of the really difficult scientific questions are related to human behavior. That's also something I was learning via, via neuroscience and cognitive neuroscience and psychology is human behavior is something very hard to understand from a scientific perspective, but it's not like we don't know anything. And then there's this other thing is that, so, you know, I, I, I was doing machine learning and many people were using it and there was scikit-learn and the number one big players we were interacting with were things like banks, insurances, uh, consulting companies, and there was a trend in what they were doing. And it was not what I was doing. I was like, okay, this seems like there is, there are more important things. It's hard to define what's more important, but there are things where I can, I can have an impact by working on them. And so I wanted to work on things that are related to social science at large where you know you're looking at behaviors of people in society and using machine learning but definitely not to do ad placements or things like this and health was definitely a place where i thought you know this is really interesting and so we're working on health but we're also working on, on things like education uh, i have i have a 
going to be supervising a PhD uh, uh, next year in uh, applications to economy. And I, this is the space where I want to be now. I think it's a good trade-off between what I understand and bringing something useful to the world. And that's these days how I choose what I work on. It sounds amazing, actually. You know, when, when we worked together in the Center for Data Science, that was my biggest question. Like, where do we... Uh, where do we have the biggest impact and how do we measure it? It's hard, so, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it, it, it is hard and it's not something that my scientific training prepared me for, to make this decision. No, 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 no. Well, the thing is, um, I don't know about the training you had, but uh, a lot of the training I had, not all of it, was very set in a, in a scientific framework. You know, as I've moved across different sciences, uh, uh, you realize that, you know, there is not one scientific framework. And, you know, you hear about the scientific method, you hear about things, and, and actually there's not one scientific method. There are different more scientific methods. And it, in a sense, they're adapted to solve different problems. And, but now what makes it really complicated is that as a scientist, you inherit implicitly from a certain way of asking uh, questions and bringing answers. And that, in a sense, that that you know, almost paints you're, you're you're in the corner. And the question is, if you're if you're interested in you know beyond the ivory tower of academia and beyond the ivory tower of your own academic field, how do you advance knowledge? Any kind of knowledge, you know, it could be you know basic scientific knowledge. It could be operational knowledge in a given in a given setting. And, you know, confronting myself to people who had done very different studies than, than me and, you know, arguing for hours over coffee or beer really taught me this. And then I, I got really interested and I, I read books about epistemology. I, I read a lot about history of science and everything. But yeah. <laughs> so what, what did you argue about? Oh, is this useful? That's something that always keeps uh. up. You know, it's, just, it's, it's such a... You know, how do you value results? You know, oh, I done this thing. It's it's really exciting. Well, I'm not excited about a lot. That's all about this. You know, whatever. You've been basically you've been basically munging numbers. You know, what does that teach me about the brain? Uh, uh, who cares about your 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 munging numbers? Oh, but I'm excited because of this. Or that or the other way around is like you know, I, there's this theory about the brain, and we go like, that's not a theory about anything. It's just, just a bunch of words. And so you, know, <laughs> you you learn to you know confront your views on science and and. I remember a discussion with my father, a physicist, uh, early on, I would say, you know, and, and, and so we have this model and immediately my father would say, that's not a model. <laughs> and then he realized model means so many different things across science. You know, in, 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 in medicine, a model is, is uh, for instance, an, an, an animal on which you can reproduce some aspects of a medical condition. So you have uh, uh, mice models of autism. Uh, that's oh. like, <laughs> so model is, you know, a very loaded term or, and it's really interesting, you know, what a theory is, what a model is, what's an evidence, uh, what's a proof, uh, uh, what's an acceptable piece of evidence, what's, uh, what constitutes progress and what doesn't constitute progress. Uh, and then, the, you know, the more you move around, and that's one thing I've always liked doing is always try not to stay in my comfort zone and try to, you know, convince people 
outside of my comfort zone. And that requires my construction playing their game. So you're trying to publish in places that are completely outside your, your education. You need to learn the game. And then you realize, you know, it's, there isn't as much to science and that is absolute as I, I thought it was. <laughs> Amazing. So what do you think made you different or a better AI researcher by, by interacting with all these other sciences or scientists? Uh, uh, I learned to think out of the box. I think that's really important. I also learned, uh, so first I think, you know, my training as a, as a physicist is really good training because a lot of AI research these days is empirical. And, uh, you know, if you, you do pure math, uh, you're not taught uh, empirical work. And, uh, you know, it's, it's good empirical work and there's less good empirical work and knowing how to do good empirical work is important. Uh, and and then I, I really like questioning the framing. You know, we frame something in a certain way and I really like questioning the framing. And I also think, you know, that's one place where AI research can easily uh, be too conservative. And many people are saying this, is that there's just too much, which is, oh, and we've improved the performance on a given benchmark. Not saying it's not useful, it's very useful, but defining the benchmark, defining the performance measure and all this, that's really important. And, and AI research has actually been somewhat of a back and forth between defining a, a benchmark and a, and a canonical problem and improving it. And this, this back and forth is really interesting. I see it's, a, I mean, I see a connection here to the previous question because benchmarks represent the importance of problems you make a benchmark and you make it popular by saying that if you solve this that's going to be a big big breakthrough right so in in, in certain sense you can separate the solution which is like like iterating the scientific method solving the problem from the importance of the problem which comes from somewhere else. It comes from another kind of argument, right? So the, uh, in, in AI, actually, we sort of formalize this process by defining benchmarks based on importance. Well, we claim they're based on importance, but uh, uh, they're based on data availability. They're based on some form of word popularity. Uh, they're based on good framing of the problem. Uh, uh, I see. So this is okay. uh -huh. Yeah, that's the way science works, right? You know, I can't do a benchmark on health for multiple reasons, but but it's not, you know, it's not currently. I can't do this. I can do other benchmarks, and so we move from problem to problem. And so, as you know, AI is very much an engineering discipline. It really likes having you know a problem where that it can solve. Other disciplines like asking problems. And I think it's, I think you're a better scientist if you like both. So you, you already mentioned it, but uh, I binged watched your recent talks, which was amazing. <laughs> and in you. one of them, you say that uh, AI went from a mathematical to an empirical science. So for those who, you know, just got acquainted with AI in the last years when GPT got out of the lab, what do you mean by that and how long and what's happened in AI that, that 
made this change possible or necessary or why did it happen? Well, so if we got, go back like 15 years or a bit more when I got involved, a lot of um, AI research or machine learning research was about finding approximations of uh, mathematical problems by easier to solve mathematical problems, so typically convex relaxations, and then you know studying how we could we could optimize these things, we could we could minimize something. So it was a lot about this. And so we were we were convex back in these days. And uh, and I think you know one thing that that really changed the, the field was that um, because people framed some problems in a really interesting way. And here I really, you know, really think of um, um, Li Feifei, who I think is an amazing researcher. And I think her ImageNet paper is not read enough. So what, what, what she did in, in framing the problem in the ImageNet paper was extremely powerful. Uh, and and so this was more in computer vision, which is not what what I was doing. But but from what I understand, there was a bit of a rupture where people were uh, tackling things in a very reductionist way. So basically, tackling aspects of pose, uh, uh, all kind of different aspects of computer vision. And what she said is, she said, you know, how about this? How about we we take a very large data set that is extremely rich, we annotate it in an extremely rich way, and and they annotated. The, the data set in a, in a very clever way because they used WordNet, which was an ontology, and they mapped it to the image. And that's a very non-trivial choice. And, and, and then she said, you know, okay, and then we get, you know, performance metrics that are relevant. And, you know, I don't remember what method they used to do the learning in this paper, but that's not relevant. They had framed the problem in such a useful way. And that enabled then us to realize that there were other ways of tackling the formal problem. And these other ways that were non-convex uh, were, were really powerful. And some people had been advocating uh, uh, for this forever, of course. But, you know, we're back into, you know, what's important and what's valued. And framing the problem in a certain way suddenly uncovered the, the power of these things. I completely agree. I think she, she should have got, got the Turing Prize because ImageNet pushed the computer vision forward by 10 years. Yeah. And it's a pity, and this is actually part of the game that uh, the people who design the benchmarks are not appreciated as much as those who design the solutions for the benchmarks. Yeah, that's a, that's, that's a problem computer science has. Yeah. Uh, so talking about benchmarks, we actually worked together five years ago on a challenge on autism. And that was also that was fascinating for me from a lot of different points of view. For example, how hard it is to really gather data for it this is. kind of uh, applications, but also the, the outcome of the challenge was really, really amazing. This is going to be a little bit technical, but for those who are in AI, I think maybe you'll appreciate this. So, Tell me, tell me about this autism challenge. How did it, how was it born and, and what were the findings? Well, I can tell you how it was born because it has a, a, a long history. It was born from, it was born many years ago, actually, because um, 
I was working with a, with a PhD student on a, on a specific problem, which is defining brain regions from the data. And we were like, how do we know those brain regions are, are useful? And, and that PhD student, Alexandre Abraham, was really brave because he was like, okay, one thing we, 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 we can do that's useful is that if we're able to, to classify a medical condition based on those brain regions. And so he assembled a pipeline and he, he took the set and he benchmarked the pipeline. And, he, and we reached out to the people who knew the data set. It was an open data set, but we reached out to the people who knew the data set really well. And then we worked together. And okay, so we could predict, but they were like, no, what's really important is to know whether you can predict across sites because there's heterogeneity in the medical condition. And, and so, so we worked... by sites, you mean like hospitals and yeah, acquisition mm -hmm. sites, so hospitals. And so we ended up predicting across countries, across continents, which is really interesting for autism because autism is a, is a symptom defined uh, disease. And, and so, uh, you know, the question is, you know, how much of, of this labeling is cultural? Mm. And so because of that framing, by the way, because of the framing that we could predict across sites and predicting across sites uh, is actually non-trivial, uh, we, we got interest in, uh, in the application domain, in, in you know, uh, uh, neuroscience and, and psychology, and that paper you know, was, was well cited. And, and so then the question is, a few years later, is you know, can we do better? And that's where the challenge comes in. You know, I, by, by then I had started being worried in um, the fact that we fool, fool ourselves because we play with data until we find something. It's just too easy to do this. And, and so I had started, you know, worrying that, well, you know, I can fool myself too. So, so I got excited about the challenge because it's about, you know, not, not doing it myself. And so having a sampling of other people and importantly, not biasing myself. So that's why it was really interesting. And so, you know, we run the challenge and the way we run the challenge is that we gather as much uh, data as possible. Uh, and actually, you know, what, what, what uh, started the challenge was that a friend reached out and said, you know, uh, well, we, we can gather a lot of data, so should we run the challenge? So we run the challenge. Uh, it takes a lot of time to set up the data. We, we, we have the people uh, compete on it. And then, uh, and then we analyzed uh, the results uh, post-talk. And what came out is that uh, very simple methods uh, were the best performers. And complex methods that people have been publishing about are, are amazing actually were not, not very useful. Uh, I can't claim I'm that surprised, but it's, it's interesting to see, to see this uh, happen. What was really interesting to me is that people were incentivized not to fool themselves. And yet, a lot of them did. And I remember, you know, after the fact, when we, we gave out the prices and we, uh, uh, we discussed, you know, the, the results, I remember some of the people were incredibly surprised to see that they had fooled themselves. And this was striking to me because I was like, you know, people fool themselves. They have no idea they're doing this. And they, they're doing this with the you know, the best will in the world and the best incentives in the world. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's, uh, actually, it, 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 it relates a little bit to, you know, my, my previous guest was uh, Vava Gligorov, who, who you know too. And he said that in their big physics collaborations, it's like 1,500 people, 
analysis goes through a collaborative review inside the experiment and the way they check this that they don't bias themselves is collaboratively like everybody has their own pet questions mm -hmm. to ask you pretty much know actually who, who will ask what but somehow because so many questions are coming at your analysis and everybody's looking at different aspects at the end you have less chance to to fool yourself in in data science we ended up doing these data challenges where you have like a hard measure of not fooling yourself because at the end usually the if it's done correctly the, the way the methods are evaluated are on completely fresh data that was not seen by the participants and so in Kaggle it happens a lot that that uh, the people who are winning on this what we call the public leaderboard the data that is given to them to train their methods are falling down in the private leaderboards it's it's very very interesting but i was also surprised that even though it wasn't the latest deep learning algorithm that won the challenge the the, the results were pretty good so you could predict autism from brain imaging at about 80% accuracy. You see, yes, the accuracy. So, so that was, how, how was it um, uh, accepted by the, the, the medical community? Or how was it seen as? It's been published for a year. It's uh, cited a bit, but not that much. And I think what we're getting from the, from the committee is indeed yes, but, is that of any interest and uh, the more i understand medical applications the more i understand the question uh, so of course you know actually the question is not the the way i would rephrase it is not is that of any interest sure it's of some interest but out of the so many things that we could be doing should we be doing this given that a brain image is so expensive Given that, you know, that result is by construction uh, uh, an optimistic result in the sense that we probably didn't have any of the weak autism people in there, the light autism. Uh, and so, you know, there was no ambiguous case. Uh, given that we're looking at uh, young adults, and if you want to do something about autism, you probably want to diagnose babies. Uh, uh, so, so yes, yes, it's, I'm, I'm still convinced it's useful. The question is, uh, uh, are we going to be able, so and then the question is, should we prioritize this? And, you know, that's one reason why I'm no longer working on brain imaging is that out of this, so many huge challenges, uh, I'm, I'm these days, I guess I'm a, I'm a short-term person and I'm interested in trying to bring value today and not tomorrow. And it's bloody hard. <laughs> so how do you measure the your impact, your value? Uh, it's hard, but you need to work with the people who understand the problem. And you know, I'll 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 be convinced I've had you know really good impact if I have something that's deployed somewhere. And, and and then we do what's known as an impact evaluation, which I think is very important and very hard. And you basically look at, and you look at many things, but you basically look at, uh, try to, to see whether causally your intervention on the system. So you deploying this thing actually 
brought some benefits to some measures of hopefully health. And everything here is hard, right? The causal thing, I mean, a randomized controlled trial of deploying an AI system wouldn't be a bad idea, by the way. But uh, the intervention is likely to be at, uh, at the organization level. Because when you deploy an AI system, you need to think about it as the, at least in health, you need to think about it as the organization level. And is that going to free time from, from medical doctors? Uh, is that, uh, on the other hand, are you going to like, Overdiagnose and and bring in many people to the the neurologist. Uh, uh, are you going to um, enable useful prevention, or are you going to uh, predict things on which you can't intervene? Uh, and and so then you know what we would need to do is uh, some form of randomized controlled trial at the uh, at the organization, which is doable via techniques uh, related to what's known as cluster trials. So basically, you're gonna you know randomize which uh, which health uh, uh, organization gets uh, uh, gets the system and doesn't. But you know the scale and the expense of these things is crazy. People do that in economics, uh, development economics, for instance. They they, they do that. And I think we should consider these things. It's so interesting that you went into this attraction because my, it was very interesting. But my question was more, most like more about how do you decide where your value will be impactful? Because your 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 first thing you said that you you have to talk to the people who, are, who know the problem. But when we talk to the people who knew the problem in CDS, the Center for Data Science, they were all super excited about their own problems. So it was not helpful. Their excitement was not helpful in for us to decide whether we should, uh, you know, recognize Mars craters or solar storm or do the autism challenge. Well, the, the first thing is, yeah, you talk to people, but you take everything they say with a grain of salt. Second, your Joe average uh, uh, academic uh, has a fairly narrow focus. So with public health, you have people who are known as, in France, are known as public health doctors. They're basically public health researchers. And they keep asking that question. You know, they keep asking, you know, what are the useful interventions? So if you go, actually, if you, if you go closer to academic fields that are at the policy level, whether it's public health or develop, developmental uh, uh, economics or things like this, you get a bit more of that. Uh, you know, if you're a physicist, you know, you, you, you build your tool, but if you're trying to be a, a physicist who worries about, about um, uh, policy making, then you need to question your tool. And in this sense, you know, um, the International uh, Panel for Climate Change uh, is doing this really well. And then you need to interact with other people who think at the system level in terms of society. Uh, that's something I've become convinced about. But isn't it interesting that there are a lot of people who are doing physics where, yeah, climate change is a big thing, but if you think about particle physics, its impact is unforeseeable and very long term, right? Yeah, so then there's a big question here, which is one I'm, I'm very interested in is, you know, the link between scientific and potentially technological progress and, and societal progress. And if you if you think in the very long term, you you can have claims like basically technological progress and scientific progress is good. I think it pretty much holds. But if you try to look at the history of, of technology and science, 
you realize that it's a very, very non-direct trajectory. It goes through loops and that, and my current thinking, because I've also on Twitter, there's a lot of uh, uh, fighting, you know, AI good, AI bad, bang. And my current thinking is that often for technology, especially, you know, disruptive technology to, to lead to, to societal progress, you need society to adapt and you need social efforts. And if you don't invest on those social efforts, uh, then it doesn't happen. And, and often, actually, if you look at the short term, short term technology is not beneficial. Uh, and I mean, and talking technology, not even talking science, you know, basic science like particle physics, it's not beneficial to the, to the many. It's beneficial to a few people. And then you need a lot of work to make it beneficial to the many. And now science is even more complex because you know between science and and technology uh, uh, there's a lot that happens. Yeah, yeah. Actually, my my current thinking about technology is that it's it there's always a goal. Usually, it's a goal to improve something, and usually it goes sideways. That it improves something, but there are also things that are harder. And a lot of times, especially with AI, if you think about the recommendation engine AI, which was built for giving you better content and ended up make you addict to content. Who was it built to give you better content? It wasn't built. Was it built to give you better content? Well, I, I, I remember the Netflix, if you, if you talk about data challenges, like the Netflix challenge in 2007, that was basically to give you movies that you will like. Yes, but it's not better content. It's to keep you consuming no. on the platform. You know, one of the, the huge benefits of their, their recommender uh, engine to Netflix is that it hides the, how empty their catalog is. You know, if you come to Netflix wanting to see a film, so often you don't find it. But if you go from, you know, hop to hop on the recommender engine, then of course, by construction, everything is on Netflix. I think that's the, the, the number one value proposal of the, the recommender engine for Netflix. For social networks, it's same thing. It's maximizing a, a entailment, you know, basically keeping you on that thing. It can be anything, but it tended to do that, especially with TikTok, which was actually built on this technology to actually keep you there. I the think... technology is built with a goal. You said you said you said it yourself. And so, when people build a recommender engine, sure, maybe it could be tuned to different ways. But you know, they're, they're, when they start instantiating it, they start instanting it, instantiating it with the logic of the of the of the organization. And, and then, you know, it's minor things, but basically then, you know, those things creep in and there's a consequence. We have what we have. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. So, so going back what I was, why I wanted to say that these things go some, even if there is good intention and they want to, let's say, increase your connectivity or social, whatever, standing or something that's, that you could deem, uh, judge good it might go sideways. For example, it might get you addicted, but the things that gets you addicted that you can get rid of actually makes you stronger. See what I mean? I'm not, 
saying that you should get addicted and then get rid of it. But it, when it happens, the only way it happens is that you transform yourself out of it. It happened with me. That's why I'm talking about this. You know, I, I, got, I got hooked on when the short videos on Facebook started to come in my face. I got hooked on cage fights. You know, it was pretty bad, short, but pretty bad. My addictions are usually like that. Because my, you know, my frontal lobe wakes up the day after and says, no, it's not possible to do this. But I have to do something about it to control my other self that it, you know, before going to sleep doesn't have any control. And so I did two things. One was getting rid of Facebook on my phone. I still log in on, on computer, but it's easier to control. The other is I, I went down in the dojo. Because I figured out that the reason why I was addicted to that particular content is that something attracted me. So it was this mysterious, you know, way of finding out. It's almost like a psychotherapeutic uh, But how process. many people, you know, don't do that? If you look at the history of, um, of um, you know, smoking, of cigarettes, of tobacco, it's not good. It's not good at all. You realize that... Uh, uh, you know the system and and the key key decision makers in the system uh, was not built in the interest of the people and the individuals in the system were all you know parts of a wider logic and they were all you know doing their job yeah no, as I'm saying this agree, it reminds me something you know a place yeah. where individuals were all doing their job and just executing orders that were coming you know from above that was part of a, a bigger logic i mean i'm talking about uh, about the nazis uh, and i hadn't you know ever made this connection just doing it live but you know the fact that you know you're 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 part of a wider system and you don't really question the wider system you're part of because you don't really understand it any anyhow it's not your job you know you're whatever a programmer or a scientist um it's dangerous. <laughs> no, I no, I I'm not defending uh, technology. I'm just saying that that this is the way I see the world actually improving through these things. Yeah, yeah, we adapt. The world improved because we adapt. So, for example, I I will have another um, guest tomorrow who has a book on Dante's uh, Divine Comedy where he actually goes through all the bad scenes, you know, in the bottom of hell, and then the lighter scenes on the top of hell, and then purgatory, where people are like struggling with, with transforming themselves into somebody good. And the, 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 the interesting thing was for me that how little um, addiction was mentioned. Like the only thing you you could have be addicted to in 1300 was food. So it was called gluttony. And it was a tiny little group somewhere in purgatory who were struggling with food addiction, right? And through technology, actually, this addiction became sort of like the, the main minor sin that somehow keeps people closed you see what i mean so yeah. yeah there's this I, I don't remember the name but there's this notion in economics that um, uh, um, wealth brings 
uh, added uh, a quality of life to a certain point. And then there's a paradox where added wealth actually doesn't add quality of life. Uh, uh, and, and so then the problem is that the reason why, why we have this is power. Because, because money defines power. With money, I can do, I can do anything. I can, I can board on the plane faster than, than you. I can get expensive uh, hospital that will cure me. Uh, bad, uh, I, can, I can get all kinds of terrible things with money. And, and so for, because, because, because at some point, you know, more money doesn't, doesn't bring better quality of life, you need to create other needs. And addiction is a good way of creating another need. That's my view of it. <laughs> like you mean the system creates a need? Yeah. The system keeps creating needs, always, everywhere. Ah, okay. So instead of going towards money, you go towards something that keeps you addicted. Well, no, that's the way that's the way you, you get people to go towards money. Uh, to, you, you, okay, sorry, you want people to give you money because because you, you want ah, power. Okay. And so because you want to get people to give you money, you need to create something for them. And an addiction is a really good way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure, sure. What what was surprising to me that this is actually a modern minor because, sin because because somehow technology made it possible to to create not like, only technology, mm -hmm. also because mm -hmm. we have enough wealth that we're in the extra. Ah, I see. Yeah. Uh, it's not only technology. I think it's also the fact that 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 many of our countries uh, uh, have enough wealth that we're basically doing extra things. Ah, uh, so okay, so we are higher up in the Menslow's pyramid, right? We don't, but th that's it actually. That's what I was thinking about. Like in thirteen hundred, you really had to struggle to f feed your kids, so you didn't have time yeah. to get addicted. Yeah, feeding so, your yeah, kids, okay. staying healthy. Uh, that was already a lot of work, and uh, you were basically you didn't have extra. Okay, so this is a great direction. I actually wanted to ask you about your relationship to money, uh, but on the subject of open source and scikit learn and incentives and uh, that kind of cloud, uh, because I want to talk about a little bit about scikit learn, I think. Uh, because I don't think all the so 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 basically, let me say just this: like everybody knows GPT now because it's out of the lab. For me, GPT is is like your Formula One engine, you know, with the V12 engine, and it really needs a lot of care and very good uh, fuel to to train on. But then you have Scikit-Learn, which is basically your power steering and your diesel dozer, the things that you, you, all uh, the cars need. Bicycle. 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 I would rather picture it as a bicycle, even nice. though people don't like bicycles as much as I like. I mean, or a small car, you know, it's like a small car. Yeah, like a commuter <laughs> car. That's what it is. Okay. And it's also very wide. It's for me. It's like maybe a mechanician's toolbox that you don't really have to know. You just bring your car to the mechanician and they fix it. So tell me more about Scikit-Learn. Like, what is it? How was it born? How did you get into it? And why? Okay, so we're we're in two thousand and nine. I'm starting to understand machine learning, but I'm just starting, by the way. Uh, I come from a background. Well. 
Uh, I come from a history of uh, uh, contribution in open source, especially in the, the Python ecosystem, which I had been uh, working with during my PhD and, um, and at a startup in the US. Uh, uh, and so I'm, I'm, I'm understanding this and uh, uh, I started thinking, you know, basically some of those algorithms are, are basic algorithms that everybody needs to have there. You know, they need to be available for everyone. And, and so the question is, how do we do this? And I'm not very happy with everything that exists. And so, uh, so together with uh, the person who was my, my advisor back then, Bertrand Thirion, we, uh, we just decided, okay, we're, we're, we're going to invest in this and uh, we're going to ask Inria uh, to uh, help us investing in this. And uh, and so one thing that I, I so one thing that was important for me is to build something that was for the Python ecosystem, and so I didn't want to build yet another tool because there were too many. So I I I, I knew that there was an abandoned code somewhere uh, that was community owned, and so I basically contacted the person behind the abandoned code and was like, okay, can we can we take it and and uh, you know basically rip it apart. And so, so he was a friend and he was like, sure, I'm not working on this. He was actually, the, the nice story is that he had started working on this and then he went uh, working on lower level things, not by sci-fi things that were more basic for the ecosystem. And so they, the, these things had improved so much that we could now build uh, a tool about. And then to me, the goal was to make those algorithms that are basically applied math algorithms available to a broader scientific community. Uh, for neuroscience, but also for physics. I, you know, I came from physics. I think back then one of my plans was to go back to physics and work on things like turbulence with um, uh, with machine learning. I thought, you know, this is a really interesting uh, scientific topic. I still think it is, but uh, so it's like, you know, I, I need those tools for that. And uh, and and what what uh, I had not foreseen is that it was of interest outside of uh, basic science outside of academia and that what we were doing to make it easy to use and understandable by people who had basic understanding of, uh, of applied math was great for data scientists because I mean we, we aren't that different from data scientists and and I think you know that's that's the, the reason why it was so successful is that we created a tool that was very well targeted for uh, you know a, a certain niche of people that niche that you know grew quite big uh, uh, and and it was in a sense quite different from other tools that were targeted to other kind of people you know people you know either they were you know considered that users you know couldn't learn to code or or that uh, users had to be experts we were in the middle and yeah then it grew a lot yeah, I mean, it grew a lot and now it's not the scientific community, but the business community that, that is using it a lot, right? Yeah. And so, but it's still, uh, uh, so, so basically it's an open source project, which means all the code is on the internet and anybody can contribute to it. I'm very much interested in you describing the, 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 the governance structure because, you know, an open source code that, that is basically the, the code of a, the research group of 10 people that's one thing you can put it on online people can look at it they can use it and eventually they can contribute but scikit-learn became something very different right it's yeah. and it's it's 
there is no company behind because the way the, what you describe is basically like a successful startup that went for a niche and then the thing that the niche was interested in got viral because there was a much bigger market but psychic learn is not a company and you are the ceo who is not a ceo because there is no no company right so how does this work how do you give incentives well, to people etc i'm not a ceo we decided one a few years ago that we would not go for the model that's uh, in open source is often known as benevolent dictator for life <laughs> uh, uh, we would go for the model that's known as steering committee so we have a steering committee of i'm not sure like a bit less than 10 people uh, uh, the steering committee is actually not uh, doesn't make many decisions that's kind of the goal the steering committee is there to resolve ties resolve things where where it's hard to make a decision but it's not there to make many decisions and then we have a broader group which is the group of what we call core developers uh, and those make many decisions uh, and these days we're actually evolving this to have an even broader concept to the concept of core groups because uh, we're more and more realizing that uh, uh, we need to have different stakeholders that make some uh, some of the decisions and so um, the way basically you get um, you get voting power you 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 know uh, go come in these groups is that uh, you work on certain aspects of the of the projects it could be code but it could also be communication for instance and uh, and and you basically get recognized by your peers and so we have an, an internal proposal which is to uh, add someone to one of the core groups and then there is a vote uh, and this person gets in and if we're looking at at, at, uh, uh, at uh, development, uh, the way the way you know the code evolves is that um, uh, people can propose things, but they're not always accepted. Actually, they're not that often accepted. Uh, and there there are guidelines which are you know very strict. But on top of this, there's a more difficult concept, which is we can't embark everything. If you know you put too much things in a boat, it, it sinks. And so you know it's a question of priority. And so we try to 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 expose uh, uh, you know not I don't like roadmaps. We might have a roadmap somewhere on the on the website, but it's more a vision. You know where do we want to go? Uh, uh, and, and 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 then you know we basically try to act uh, accordingly to our vision. And then the difficulty is is you know. Not everybody agrees, and the core group people tend to agree because we're very based on consensus. We're very based on you know discussion and trying to to understand each other's point of view. And if we disagree, we're trying to basically explain the point of view until we find a, a place where we agree. And usually that that makes us stronger. Uh, the problem is that sometimes people are not part of those discussions, and and a lot of this happens in the open, but not everything. And and may not you know completely share our understanding, uh, and it's difficult because everything is a gray zone. <laughs> so how is it connected to value? Like how how is this a business community who is actually the basic user of Scikit-Learn can influence where it goes? So for this, because there's no money a, involved, right? They they, they there are is not money paying. Involved. There ah. is money involved. Uh, they started being money involved a few years ago. 
uh, we just basically can't. Uh, it's it's too big, and we basically can't um, uh, can't get it to run only by working uh, on it uh, during nights and weekends. That's not how it works. Uh, so you know, as as you know, because you you helped with that many years ago, we were mostly funded by grant money, uh, academic grant money. And these years, we have the situation where some uh, important companies may employ uh, core developers, or actually they may employ people who are not core developers, but who are contributing with the mission of con to contribute. Not that many companies do this, but, but some companies do this. Uh, it's really interesting. In a sense, you know, I, I, I've always admired the, the Linux project and it's uh, the, the the way it was it was organized, and I, I realize we're actually getting a bit closer to this. Right, we have major companies, uh, for instance, hardware providers, who employ someone with the mission not to make the software work better on the specific hardware, but rather to make the software more healthy, because if it's more healthy, then it can, on top of this, work well on the hardware. So we've gotten to this point, which is an amazing point. And I should give credit to NVIDIA, because they're they're literally paying someone. And when that person came, it was like, OK, so what's your mission? You know, Are you going to try to get basically CUDA code and scikit-learn? And the person was like, no. My mission is to make Scikit-learn super healthy so that we can interact with NVIDIA. And they've been true to their world. So now, it's, eco we, it's like ecosystem building for It's them. an ecosystem building. And there, of course, there are other companies. We have, we have an insurance company that employs someone. We have data science uh, 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 companies that sell tools on data science that employ people. We have a foundation where companies that don't feel that they're you know big enough or that they have the the uh, uh, the knowledge inside the company to 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 grow and employ a core dev that they can uh, give money to the foundation uh, and and employ people and then they get uh, I wouldn't really call it voting power they get consensus building power uh, uh, on the money they 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 give so it's really interesting that we are going to have you know steering committee meetings where the people talk and you know basically every every person on on the board uh, explains uh, their their challenges and their priorities for cycle three and then we try to do consensus building and we're like okay you know different companies from different uh, business uh, points of view what can we find that's important for enough people that we should invest on it that's really interesting so that's the current situation uh, and and I think to grow more, we would need the red hat of Scikit-Learn if you want to do the Linux uh, uh, analogy. So what's because, that model? Well, we need integration. Yeah. What's missing is integration. So machine learning is only a little bit of the data science pipeline in real life. So we need integration. We need integration to databases. We need integration to model serving. Uh, and, and we need we need someone who can be uh, uh, who can provide uh, supports and services on people who build integrations. Say you 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 have an insurance company and you have you know decision making logic. You don't want this thing to go down. 
You want somebody to help you architecture the system and you want somebody that you can call on the phone uh, if you have like a super important emergency or a potential security breach, which is what Red Hat does. I see. I see, I see. How is it related to the deep learning ecosystem? Uh, I, I think it's complementary. So, uh, you know, you, you mentioned uh, you know, Formula One. I, I, I think of monster trucks, uh, but uh, 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 that said, you know, uh, so I, th there's this notion of appropriate technology, which is that you should build a technology to solve a problem and you should think about the problem you're trying to solve and that, you know, relates to the discussion we were having before. Uh, and I think it's a very important notion uh, and, and this is basically how I see psychic learning. You know, I work in health and we work in, in hospitals. We need to work in hospitals. We, and, and then, you know, we're kind of constrained with, uh, with uh, the resources we have, the data we have. And I, I try in my research to be fairly agnostic to technology. I try to use the best technology and I use deep learning sometimes, uh, but, you know, psychic learning comes back often very often so you know you know try to avoid using too big of a track is an important thing for all kind of reasons you know uh, if we you know if we think for instance of gpus i think you know they're only my, my guesstimate is that they're only like a, a thousand a100 in france and you know only very few actors have these so if you become tied to hardware that is hard to get you're losing your autonomy. And autonomy, by the way, is an important aspect of ethics in general, especially ethics of automation. Uh, so you don't want to disempower people. And so scikit-learn is about, you know, how can we make it as simple as possible, including, you know, not relying on too much data, not relying on too much hardware. Now, for some things, deep learning is the right answer. In, in, in this, you know, in this thought process of autonomy, Pre-trained deep learning is actually super useful. Uh, not everybody needs to be training the deep nets. You know, you can take pre-trained deep nets and they can be very useful. In no way are we going to do computer vision without pre-trained deep nets. Uh, and so here we have a very interesting complementary aspect. So I mean, you know, even if you're in a resource-limited environment, which most of our most environments are. Uh, uh, you, you might want to combine, you know, a pre-trained uh, deep net with scikit-learn. And in my experience, by the way, most applications, by a wide margin, work with at least some some aspect of tabular data. And if you're doing this, you probably want to combine pre-trained models for text and images with the tree-based models uh, for uh, uh, for the rest. So, you know, I really think uh, I'm, I'll be very happy to use deep learning when it, uh, when it solves all my needs. These days, I do need a mixture of different things. And, and, and going back to where we sit in the ecosystem, I, I really like PyTorch not only as a, as a technological object, it's a beautiful library, but also with the way they've been building uh, an ecosystem and relying on a foundation. And, you know, I really see them as part of a broader ecosystem with sometimes a similar philosophy. 
I see. Okay, I'll get back to this point, but I still want to dig a little bit into the sociology of the psychic learn organization. Like, how many people are there in the different uh, layers of this onion? So, in the core groups, I say I don't know the numbers, but I say we have we we have thirty-ish people in the core groups. We have communication and marketing, that's really important. We don't have enough people in communication and marketing. Historically, we've not been good enough uh, in enabling these people. Uh, the tools we use are tools for geeks and everything. Uh, we, we have, uh, we, have we, we, we just set, set up a documentation team. I'm very excited about this. Uh, we have the coders team. We have a, 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 a community engagement team, uh, and it's really interesting because we started uh, by being jack of all trades, and as we're specializing, it's good because we can, you know, embark people who, are, who you know, have differentiating skills, uh, and that just makes a better team. And this team is uh, distributed. Or are you in the same space? No, it's mostly it's online, right? So it, it, COVID yeah. didn't bother you at all because it was already. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's mostly online. You know, we have a lot of people in France. We have something like ten people in France, but we have people worldwide. So I'm not at all familiar with the the latest dynamics, but I remember, maybe it's not, it wasn't even Scikit-Learn, but like open source. The tool we use is Git. GitHub, there are issues that are has to be solved. There are what we call pull requests when somebody wants to contribute. So there is a lot of sort of like it's like a messaging system, right? You have something like a problem and then people start talking about it. And my feeling was that there was a lot of emotions flying around, which were really hard to manage because it was all written. And so as a team manager, when something like this happens in my team, it's much easier for me to resolve it by talking to the person. It's almost like a therapy session and much harder if it's only written communication. So is there so two questions? Actually, one is what kind of people does it attract to work in this way? And how do you manage this sort of um, soft people management problems in terms of the kind of people i think you know there's one one thing really important in terms of the people who are, who are successful and stick is that you need to have a strong will to serve a community a community of users because uh it, 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 it's hard work you know people it's not that people are unhappy it's that you only hear about the unhappy people it's normal. It's, it, 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 it's, it's like it's a service mentality. You know, it's like uh, being a, a, a first line uh, IT support. When you're first line IT support, people only come to you with problems. It's really hard from a mental perspective. Uh, uh, and so you, you, need, you need to be able to cope with this, which means that you need to see your value in the success of others it's really important it's basically 
I'm going to work really hard to do this thing that is going to appear so minor for the user that's going to improve a bit the convergence of this algorithm or improve this error message. And, and because we have millions of users, because we do have millions of users, it's going to make an impact. It's going to make a difference. But I'm probably not going to see it. That's like the, the hardest thing. And the people who don't have this mentality can't stick around. The people who do, by the way, tend to be very nice people. You know, they might be they might be uh, uh, geeks with no social skills, but behind this, they have a good nature. And so, you know, that's the kind of people who stick around. And then, you know, how do we how do we how do we get this group dynamics? Well, first, we sometimes talk to each other. So something that we really like is to, to all get in the same uh, room and work together. We call this sprints. It's amazing. I've become worried about carbon footprints. So I, 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 we do less sprints than we used to do. But we have a monthly meeting and we talk to each other. And whenever we can, we can, we try to see each other. Whenever I go by a, a city and I know there's someone, I try to see that person. It's also very pleasant. You know, we, there's so much, uh, yeah, coat, sweat, and tears uh, uh, that goes in this library that you just just seeing someone with whom you you fought a battle against uh, against lines of code uh, is it's just very pleasant. And this, by the way, has always been the case. I mean, I remember uh, the the during my PhD flying to the U.S. for a conference, a uh, physics conference, and getting to meet. Uh, as someone I knew through through internet, uh, 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 working on code, and that person by now got very famous. It's uh, Fernando Perez of the the Jupiter. Uh, uh, just you know, you just you're meeting you're meeting someone you've never met, but is a, is an amazing friend. So there's a lot of this, you know. There's a lot of human aspect, and then you know, back to written culture. You can do things by writing. Uh, I actually like some of the writing you know it's choose your world your words carefully try to be positive and you can do a lot and so you can impact many people and the other thing is that by doing this you're setting standards and then people reproduce those standards it's something we're careful about in second learning so there is a sort of like a communication code i we we have a code of conduct it's uh but deeper than so, like psychology. Yeah, so there's two aspects to 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 any kind of dynamics. There's what's written and what's a socially enforced norm. And there's there's a trade-off, right? You know, not writing anything leads you in what people uh, uh, call the tyranny of the structuralist if you're not careful. Uh, but writing things won't make them happen. Yes, for things to happen, you need to adapt the social norms. And so this is very much driven by example, driven by who's there. Uh, and I think that's very important. Hmm. Baba, so the physicist friend of us, talked about the one issue in the collaboration that reminds me to this discussion, which is that there are physics tasks and there are what they call technical tasks. Like they need to have people who are experts of the yeah. cooling system because it's, it has to be maintained. They need to have people who can code FPGA 
or GPU, and they need them usually urgently because something goes wrong. On the other hand, the output of the collaboration is the 60 or 80 papers per year with the physics results. And what you said about the person who has very little visibility on his impact on some pipelines, that's what Baba said. Like, it's really hard to measure the impact of somebody who just who really likes to code FPGA. And maybe in a company, he would have like a, an aura or, or some impact that he could see uh, directly. In the, his experiment, it's, it's really, really hard. And so that, and that was one problem. The other problem was the, the, the hiring. So he said that it's really hard to get these people permanent jobs because most of the permanent jobs in his experiments come from universities who want PhD physicists, not necessarily FPGA engineers. And because of this, it's actually a, a sort of miracle that the, those big experiments actually work because they have to do it during a PhD, they have to train people who leave, etc. So is it there is is there any similarity here? There is. Uh, and that's my job, basically. What you're describing is my job. <laughs> is uh, make worrying about people's career. That's crucial. And, and of course, I can't do any miracles, right? Uh, but worrying about people's careers is, is very important. And so you know, the job of a manager is usually to, to keep the good people happy. Um, and also, so one, one thing that works really well is sending people to conferences, to, to non-scientific conferences, to coding conferences or data science conferences, because they get, they get the, the, the feedback. But some people actually don't want this. Some people are happy without this. So, you know, it's a different answer for different people. Uh, and then for with regard to their hiring, that's bloody hard. That's why we need the red hat. <laughs> So Red Hat is a sort of uh, organization where you would get the flow of money and you yeah. could get like job stability to these people. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, and so we did a big, big circle. Uh, I have a couple of like more personal questions. I had a really hard time when I still, but uh, especially when I was doing hardcore academic research to bring it home. I almost felt like I had two lives, you know, one as a scientist in the lab doing the science and one at home doing the normal human stuff. So do you feel similarly or not at all? And uh, what, what happened? I know your, your partner is also a scientist. So in that sense, you're at home, but what do you tell to your mom what you do and how much it's my mother was a, a a math teacher. Okay. No, I I no, I have no problems. No, not at all. I I I one thing I really enjoy is is talking to people who don't do what I do. I, I find it fascinating. The other day I was uh, uh, taking a cab to come back from a conference, uh, uh, and uh, so the, the the cab driver asks, "So, so you're a bunch of computer people, right? That is building is computer people." I'm like, "Yeah, yeah." Oh, and in, in what do you do? Do you do AI? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, and, and like anything in AI? Oh, I'm interested in health and AI. And then we basically start, you know, talking 
you know, impact of AI in society and AI ethics and everything. And I love talking to people in terms that they understand because uh, this is what gives a meaning to what I do. Where, where I have more of a problem is when I find scientists who don't value this and who are like, they're happy in their ivory tower. I, I, I love the continuity. And, and, I, and, and, you know, it's part of what I do also. I want what I do to be meaningful. And if I can't bring it back to something, if I can't discuss this with many people, even if it's simplifying it to the bone, but if I can't explain why I'm doing something, I'm not interested in it. And I think, by the way, it's something important for many, many scientists. I think many, many scientists should worry about this a bit more because this is how you write a great introduction. And because, you know, we tend to write the papers for the people who do exactly the same thing that we do, basically for our reviewers. And even for our reviewers, you know, people always complain that they didn't get a qualified enough reviewer. But the paper should be written for the whole community. And our community is huge. And ideally, it, you know, the, the research, not the paper, but the research should matter to more than our community. That's, that's something I'm passionate about. And that's why I love my job. It's because it allows me to think about many, many things and try to bring it home. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think we are lucky. AI, AI has become an icebreaker in taxi. <laughs> <laughs> AI is an icebreaker. <laughs> it wasn't like that 10 years ago. But everybody knows GPT, so in that sense, uh, we can be thankful for OpenAI. Um, <laughs> Okay, well, thank you very much, Gal. Uh, the last thing I usually ask my guest is to ask me a question. Like, what would you like to know? What excites you? Ah, what excites me? Well, this podcast. <laughs> nice. And the Why? blog. Why? <laughs> that was, yeah, that's what Baba asked also. <laughs> uh, it's, it's very much connected to what you just said about the taxi driver. I want to bring uh, science closer to people and but it has a very very deep psychological reason that i recently figured out it's basically i want to be seen <laughs> right and everything you describe i completely empathize uh, the psychic learn coder who has you who actually you validate him and actually the, the, the value that maybe is far away comes through you. I often felt in the scientific community that that person was missing. Like we had this, uh, even the, you know, the, the process of submitting a paper, getting anonymous reviewers, it takes the human out of the picture. You get, of course, very happy when it's accepted, but even then you had like a really good reviewers who you cannot thank. Right. So, so that sort of, um, that was one reason why, why I, I, I went into industry because I wanted to be closer to the people or to the customer or inside the company who, who would benefit from what I do. And I wanted to know them personally more than just through, uh, anonymous reviews. Uh, so then, you know, one thing led to the other. And then I figured that uh, it's, a, it's the right time to do a podcast where we talk about AI and we talk about talk with the people behind AI. 
I also want to do much broader than just uh, AI and even broader than scientists and because I'm very much interested in psychology and even like organizational sociology. I mean, you, you saw it in my question. It's still science, by the way. Some, yeah, some of it is science, but I, I would say that like the value question, the why question is, pro, is profoundly non-scientific. It's, and it's not a criticism of it. It's just, uh, it's an philosophy then. Yeah, of course. Yeah, so philosophy sort of connects it, but also, you know, theology, psychology, sociology, so all these things. And of course, all those things have scientific uh, aspects. You can study sociology or psychology from with a scientific uh, class, but it's there's much more more than that because of um, you know the internal view, which is first person and and hard to study from the third person scientific view. So I'm very much in this you know this um, cloud where I want to. It's 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 partly for me to figure it out. You know, it's I found it not very easy to just write in my you know ivory tower just listen to youtube videos and write so i wanted to do something that's uh, more dialogical because actually the, the best thing is when we discover something together you had a couple of moments when you said that uh, you're just making it up which is it's really actually a good thing you know that's why we talk so these, these these are the things that excite me and also the, there is the blog where but they, i use the blog also to clear my mind actually you know because it's uh, by writing things uh, things auto clarify themselves yeah, exactly Always. and and it's also it's almost like a dialogue with myself i write something and then then it generates something you know the mysteries of these thoughts so this this is what what excites me and of course uh, i'm also very much excited with my by my research at to a way which I'm trying to connect to all these things. So it's basically about uh, agency, reinforcement learning, uh, planning, thinking machines, and then putting them into hardware that we interact with. So that's basically like you know the big picture of uh, of the research we do. And so yeah, I'm. Uh, I mean, at, I'm at the point in my life where I'm pretty happy and <laughs> have a lot of things to get excited about. Yeah. I think that's the important thing. Yeah. Excited about things is a good way of uh, staying happy. <laughs> yeah, and then there's also a lot of things I do uh, with my body that I really enjoy. And that's that's recent. When I realized that, you know, psychological issues are easier to heal through the body. Yeah. And, it's uh, to work. It's a 12, uh, 12 kilometers uh, bike ride. And it's really important uh, for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So physical and also movement and also relational movement like dance and stuff and jujitsu, which, you know, <laughs> thanks Facebook. <laughs> nice. That's like how how life is. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you very much, Gal. It was a great, great pleasure talking to you, and I I enjoyed it from the beginning. I was a bit nervous in the beginning. Ah, <laughs> oh God! That still happens, you know. <laughs> well, thanks a lot, Vanish. It was a real pleasure for me too. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, and uh, hope you hope to see you in real life soon.
We should, we should. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Bye. Bye, bye. <laughs>